Hello and welcome to the Wow at Work podcast. I'm Stephen Dargan. And I'm Liliana Ashton. And today we're going to talk about, you know, a couple of different topics. One is the great resignation, and this is regarding the workplace. But we're also going to look at some very interesting uh, breathing techniques. Today we will cover bold scores, mouth taping, breath holes, dysfunctional breathing, and much, much more. Mouth taping. I've never heard of bold scores. What are bold scores? Well, bold score is body oxygen level tests. Score. And it's very simple to do. I will take you through one. And uh, it's about measuring whether you are potentially a dysfunctional breather or not. Oh, I like the idea of that. Let's see how long you can hold it before you get this moderate air hunger. Moderate air hunger is when you think, I need to breathe. Then at that point, they just take a normal breath through your nose again. So don't worry, Stephen, I will guide you through it and I will also time you. So let's just straighten our back gently. Let's breathe through your nose, in and out normally and gently. Let's do it again. Let's try and find a calm rhythm here. In and out through your nose. Now on your next exhale, exhale gently all the air and pinch your nose while holding your breath. Hold your breath, pinching your nose. When you feel this moderate air hunger, just let it go and take a normal breath through your nose again. You don't need to hold it for too long. It's just this moderate air hunger that comes naturally. Wow, that's fantastic. That was 43 seconds. That's fantastic, Stephen. Wow. Anywhere around 25 seconds is fantastic. But if you can only hold less than 10 seconds, you may be a dysfunctional breather, which could mean lots of things and will need to be addressed for sure. But just to give you an idea, 50% of lower back uh, pain sufferers are the functional breathers. So really this functional breathing is linked to a wide range of potential problems and can be fixed very, very easily. Hyperventilation is one of the things also related to dysfunctional uh, breathers. So yeah, thank you very much for doing that uh, bolt score with me, Stephen. Thank you. So Stephen, you also mentioned about the great resignation what is it? This is really interesting. This is a phenomenon. It's not like a phenomenon, but it's something that's began to happen. Over the last year, we've began to notice a couple of different things and various different companies have been doing studies on this or research on this. We've discovered that sort of with the world of work changing and the genie out of the bottle when it comes to remote working, everything's a little bit different. And one of the things that we noticed specifically with America was between 2019 and 2020, there was 6 million less people resign from work. So they do have average figures where people just do resign from work for whatever reasons. They don't like working there. They have to move, whatever it might be. But 6 million less did it in that year. And we know that the most likely reason is that job security, you know, the whole pandemic caused people to, to, to make decisions that they wouldn't have made before by staying in the job that they had, even though they didn't like it, just because they knew there was security involved in doing that. So they stayed within that. That doesn't mean that people have stopped resigning. What it means is that people have just delayed the process of resigning. So now what we've discovered that in 2021, we've began to see the floodgates begin to open. And for the first time around about March, we saw the figures where about 2.4% of the American population had decided to resign. And that was the highest March figure for 20 years. We had never seen that in the last 20 years, but it even went up higher 
into April, it went up to about 2.7%, which was roughly about 4 million people resigned in America in April. And do you know what's the main reason for these resignations? Well, I think people are beginning to reevaluate what they want from life and they're beginning to see lots of different things um, because the genie is out of the bottle. And you've got to remember that now when many people worked remotely, there was no training manual that came with remote working. No one had a training officer turn up and show them what to do. We figured it out and we did it ourselves. So people are quite adaptable and quite flexible when they can have to do something while well, when they take on something that they didn't expect to to have to do. So we did that quite well. So what's also happening is that now we know what remote working feels like. A lot of us seem to enjoy it. We enjoy the fact that we don't have to commute to work every day, uh, turn up to an office, maybe be around colleagues that we don't really appreciate being around, have to deal with all the office politics that comes with that, have to go to meetings that don't make sense. So there's lots of reasons why we've enjoyed our life, you know, working remotely. We've also, without the commute, the minute we switch off the computer and finish our day, we're pretty much at home and we can, you know, uh, connect with the family and do lots of different types of things that we would have been unable to do because we would have been on that hour and a half commute home or or however long to, to do that. So what's happened is that we've discovered that remote working feels kind of nice and we can sort of feel a sense of a different way of looking at life. Like there's other people have talked about the thing called the Great Reset, where we're resetting the way that we look at the world and and we perceive the world around us. Yeah, I mean, in any big change like this one that we're seeing now, there will also be some problems associated with this uh, reset. Do you see problems also coming out from people working from home? Here's a really interesting one because the Harvard Business Review had a look at this. And since May 2020, they looked at this, 32% say they never want to ever return to the office. So that's, that's pretty much a third of the workplace. Say they never want to enter into the, in, in, into the office again. But the other side of that is that 21% of people say that they never want to spend another day working from home. So we got this dichotomy. We got this mix. The fifth say that they never want to work from home because they probably work from home say specifically if they're Gen Zers or whatever, you know, they've sat in their bedrooms, they've tried to work as well as they could. They might have had a shared room with somebody else. It's been really difficult. They've had a tough time trying to, to be able to connect with others because they may have never even gone into the office to meet their team. They might have only ever seen them remotely. And that's really, really difficult. So they want to get back into the office. They want to connect with people. So that's the issue there with them as well. Microsoft did another really interesting study and they discovered that not only are 46% of those people more likely to benefit from working remotely. They, they want to stay working remotely. And 73% people want flexible options to stay within the workplace. So now in our mindset, we've seen how different work can be and we kind of like it and we want to want to grasp on sort of positives that have come from that. But when we talk about the great resignation, we're talking about roughly about 41% of those employers, about 40% of the, uh, the working population are considering leaving organizations in the next year, which is huge. So if you look around the list of your workers or the people that work in your organization, roughly just under half of them are considering leaving your organization unless you put things in place, as you just spoke about, to be able to transform the world of work so that they want to be able to stay there. That's so interesting because I, I can see this in, in, with two sides of the same coin, really, because there will be people that do not want to work from home another day, like you mentioned and other people that want to stay working from home. So there will be actually an exodus from both sides of these desires to work how, how to work from where. So I suppose this is where the hybrid workplaces and companies acting upon giving their best talents and their best assets, the best uh, options come to play. This is a situation we've never had in our lives, in modern lives, where companies will have to cater for both to be able to keep the best talents. Is that something that you have come across in your research as well, Stephen? Yeah, I I think... One of the things that needs to, to be taken into account by organizations and leaders is, is what is the workplace value proposition? And what I mean by that is, how can you create a workplace where when people turn up to work, it feels better than working remotely? And there's lots of things that need to play to that. How do we get people to, to want to work on site? How does our workplace offer us things in the workplace that enhance our employee experience, our how will it be better than home? How will it feel safe? How will they have the right protocols in place and all those, those things that really matter at this moment? So 
we've really got to create a workplace that feels better than what you're experiencing, what you have experienced for the last 18 months. And that's a big ask because for most of us going to the workplace probably wasn't our favorite experience of the week, but we did it for years. Now we've realized that there are two options. We can actually go into that place that doesn't feel that great, or we can stay working from the place that did feel better because we controlled it. We controlled the environment that we work from from home. And that's the difficulty that organizations need to, uh, to be able to address. I think personally, a hybrid model is a really good model because like working remotely has its positives for many people. Yeah. It'll be a very positive experience for, for those that are introverted. I know Dan Price uh, from Gravity Payments talks about this. He's a really interesting guy. Dan Price and Gravity Payments are that organization back in 2015 that looked at the, the model when we talk about salaries. And we discovered in a study that salaries of roughly around $70,000 a year is the optimum amount of money that somebody needs to be paid to be happy. And after that, no matter how much you pay somebody or increase their payments uh, incrementally, it doesn't create any more happiness. And he was so interesting that in his, his company, which are a credit card payment company for, for small businesses. What he discovered was, um, well, he was on a salary, I think of around about a million a year in the organization. And he took a pay cut to $70,000 a year and he raised everybody else up to $70,000 a year in that organization. So now the minimum wage for that organization is $70,000 a year, which is fantastic. He recognizes that a lot of the people who work for his organization may be introverted and it sort of benefits them to be out of the working environment, the meetings and all that kind of stuff. And I think we live in this world where we think that us extroverts, and I am one of them, think that if introverts could just be a, just a bit more energetic and a just bit more switched on, they could turn in, into extroverts. And that's not the case. It's not the case at all. That's music to my ears. <laughs> You're talking to, <laughs> to one introvert. Yes, that even though it doesn't look like it. <laughs> That makes so much sense, it does, because we cater, our workplace generally caters for extroverts, isn't it? At meetings, they're the first to stick their hand up. At the team engagement days, they're the first ones to get involved in, in the activities. You know, in introverts, we don't hear their ideas as much. And I suppose we're getting the best out of them when we allow them to be what they're best at. And that's, you know, working alone and coming up with ideas and being creative. But the other thing I think is important too, as well, is when we talk about the hybrid model, is that... I was thinking about this this weekend. I was away for a couple of days, I was, and I went up to the northwest of Ireland here where I live, and I went to this beautiful county called Leitrim, and I just had a beautiful few days away, and I just had never spent much time up there before, and I just saw how beautiful the county was, um, how beautiful the landscape was. It's near the coastline. It's, it's just just gorgeous. Makes me want to go there now, oh, honestly. tell you what, you'd love it. It's a fantastic place. And the towns are clean and they, they just seem to cater to the, the, for the well-being of the people in the county. I just, I just got that feeling. So I'm there and I'm just looking at the property prices. And I went, my God, the property prices compared to living in cities here in Ireland are really, really good value. Now, I don't live in a city. I did for years. And about 20 years ago, I moved out into the country where I live. Not, not in the country, but to a smaller town. I'm quite happy where I am. I've got lots of things that connect me to this place. But I was thinking that if I worked for an organization that allowed me to work remotely and I was in a different situation in my life, I would definitely be looking at the prospect of moving to somewhere where I could do that. And the summer that looked very engaging was, was the Northwest or to, to Leitrim, to a county where I could afford the property because I checked the property prices. If I had really good Wi-Fi and I could do that, my life would feel far more fulfilling uh, from, from doing that because I know from one of the people that I'd met on that journey for a few days away was a guy who worked for the EU. And what he told me was that before the pandemic started, his week started at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning or a Monday morning where he got up at 3 a.m., made his way to the airport, flew to Brussels and was at his desk by half nine, then did his weekly work. And then on Friday had to fly back, catch up with the family again and go through that process again every Sunday more, uh, every Monday morning. And he said, this has just felt like a godsend. He's getting really good work done where he is and he doesn't have to go through all that rigmarole of traveling and being away from the family and i think we're beginning to think like this so some of us that will work perfectly but i think we need to get the balance right i think some of the magic happens when we're around other people those conversations before and after meetings those conversations you know having coffee with somebody or meeting somebody in the hall that's where you know good ideas come from and i yes. think we need to be very cognizant of 
you know, what could happen if we suddenly all ended up working remotely? Would we end up with a pandemic of loneliness? Would that be the problem? I suppose it's all about balance in everything in our lives. It's all about balance. Um, and I, I cannot uh, relate to that more than when we do breathwork exercises. Mm. And it's all about, okay, sometimes we need to ignite our energy to, to do more focus or more energized work. Sometimes we need to really biohack our state of minds just to be able to sleep peacefully and really get these vitamins of sleep like Dr. Matt Walker's uh, professor of neuroscience and psychology of the University of California says, you know, the, the, the author of Why We Sleep. But also we need to, uh, through breath work, we can also balance. And it's exactly the same in, in life and in work. It's all about balance. When you were talking about this person that was having to, to, to go to Brussels every every Monday morning at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning, I was thinking about uh, the disruption in his own body biology and the the sleep deprivations uh, that he would have. And of course, now all of that energy will be utilized to do the best work and also to enjoy life in a different way. Of course, there is a little bit of everything in, in, in every situation if we know how to make the most of it. But yeah, absolutely. It's all about balance. Yeah, Gallup have done some interesting studies in this and they've discovered that over the last, you know, year and a half that worry, stress, anger and sadness have all risen in the in the human population. So we're feeling more stressed, we're feeling more worry, there's more anger that's going on and we're feeling sadness. Now there could be other contributory factors to that, whether social media is causing a rise in anger or whatever, you know. But certainly we're in a different place and we want to be able to be in a situation where we placate, placate that. So yes. you as an employer anyone who's listening as a, as a leader or an employer, we need to work even harder now to be able to address those issues because that's what we're experiencing. We've all come through the last 18 months. It's been really difficult. And we've just tried to, as I've said this before, and I've said it many times, we've been, you know, trying to work or, or we've been trying to survive through a pandemic, keep our family safe, ourselves safe, people around us safe, and still try to work. And work hasn't been a priority for most of us in the last 18 months. It's been survival. Yes. And that's important for, you know, leaders and organizations to be able to understand. So we need to have this flexibility. People want a flexible workplace. Remember I said that 73% of people still want flexible options for workplaces to stay. We need that in our lives to be able to take care of the ones that we care about and take care of the lives that we have outside of work. So we need to find ways to be able to, to have that. And the best workplaces are allowing that to happen. And I think that you've just uh, touched on a very important point there, that uh, some people are more resilient to these changes and stresses and, and, and new uh, situations than others. So leaders and, and in organizations also need to take that into account. And I, I suppose some people are able to cope with, with these new stresses in a much better way than others. Some of the reasons is potentially just the way they they are built or the way their their habits are are built within them one of the things that i know from from breathing is that people that are breathing hyperventilating when they're breathing are more prone to react to stress in in a negative way to the to their own bodies and to everyone around them because of course their body is in a constant state of fight and fly and this is what we constantly have in this modern life. So if people are not able to control their state of minds through tuning into also tools like their breath, they will be less resilient to these changes. And I suppose this is another topic that for us is very close to our hearts and is looking after your employee while they're working either from home or from uh, from the office, that they have this uh, knowledge, this toolbox of knowledge of how to look after their own bodies, their own mental states, and what can they do to perform better, but to be happy, not just at work, but also at home, because of course, they're not compartments there, which is something that we touched upon as well last time that we, uh, on our last episode. And what, what I think as well is, is important is that when you've got an organization that you work for that really cares for you as a human being, this is important. And these are the workplaces of the future. And I may have mentioned this before in the last podcast, but I'm not quite sure. Like w one of the organizations, and I, I remember seeing 
I've seen, I think it's about three of the leaders of the organizations talk at the various different happy workplaces conferences in the UK from this organization speak. And they're a company that's based in the UK. They employ over 80,000 people. And when they have meetings um, with the board, roughly go on for four and a half to five hours, roughly about 30 minutes to an hour of those meetings are spent talking about the financials and the other four hours are spent talking about their people. That organization is John Lewis. And John Lewis, who also owned the Waitrose Group as well, are really big on supporting their people and have done since, you know, the early uh, part of the 20th century, around about 1916, where John Speed and Lewis began to take over the organization and began to really think that this should be a partnership where everybody else in the organization is valued. That still stands today with that organization. So one of the things that's important is is not just about, you know, creating, when it comes to great resignation, is, is creating a workplace where people want to stay and to work. It's about also not creating a toxic workplace where people want to leave. That's important. And what we call them is companies with bad hygiene, you know, where, you know, there's low conditions or there's poor conditions or there's low pay and there's lots of reasons why people want to leave. People are going to leave those organizations. So if you're not willing to put the time and effort into ensuring that you have a workplace where people feel trusted, feel engaged, given the tools to do what they do best and slotted into the right roles, there's a problem there. And the John Lewises have constantly spent their life looking at ways to be able to, you know, create an organization where people feel good because we know we do do our best in those organizations. So it's about creating a great place to be from workplace. So people, companies have to recognize that people will not stay with your organization anymore. It's not like working, you know, for, you know, a factory or a coal mine that you might have done, your grandparents might have done that for 40 or 50 years. That's gone. So people do move out of organizations. So if you can create an organization where it's a great place to be from, that's a great and solid standing for where you move on to, to next. And organizations that are thinking thinking that are the organizations that we want to work for. Like, I know that if I was to employ anybody from John Lewis, I know I'm getting a really good work for. I know that if I was to take on, say, even somewhere like uh, when it comes to customer service, someone from the uh, the food chain pret in England. I know that customer service is really good. I know that every time I walk into a Pret-a-Manger, hopefully to do it again soon sometime, that when yeah. I get a chance to walk in, I know that they genuinely make me feel like, you know... Um, You're valued. Yeah, valued. It's, it's there and it's in, built into what they do. So I know yes. that if I was to employ somebody from Pret-a-Manger, I know they've got those foundation tools there already. And great organizations are beginning to do that. So how do you create one of those great workplaces to be from? And there's a really interesting company that I came across called uh, Recruit Holdings. They're a Japanese company, which I hadn't really heard about before at all. But they employ 50,000 people and they own Glassdoor and they own Indeed as well, which are recruitment companies. And um, they have a, a philosophy within the organization that a good manager should figure out what an employee is passionate about and find a way to be able to give it tasks relevant to the company. So... One of the tools that they think is that if we link work to social purposes that employees care about, that's important. So if I was, say, interested in uh, the environment and there was a project in the organization where we're trying to cut carbon emissions or we're trying to, you know, increase recycling or whatever. If I was given that project within the organization, I'm also, you know, being attached to another motivator that is driving me and challenging me and it's connected yes. to, to, to what makes me passionate. And great organizations should be able to do that, to really slot people into what they're passionate about, what they're good at, and find the role for them. But so often in organizations, that's not the case. So that's the first pillar. If we can do that, you know, link people to work, uh, to, to social purposes that employees care about, that's important. That's creating what we call a great place to be from. And then the second thing is then, if we can just develop employees, and this is important, because it's to encourage them, to give them challenging roles, to all the employees, you know, not just the senior ones, but also to junior ones that are within the organizations. And great managers within that organization recruit, they're evaluated on how well uh, they know their direct reports and their peers that work for them. And that's important in an organization. But we also need to work or create organizations that build a really good culture of innovation, learning and recognition. And that is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
Because when we do that, like Silicon Valley have done this. I know Atlassian are a company that started doing this. An Australian company did this years and years back where they gave yes. time off. the twenty. You know, the idea of the 20% time, which Google took on for a while, where the idea yes. was that 20% of time was given to, you know, uh, projects that you felt were, you know, of value. Um, and somehow they could integrate that into the organization. And I think at one stage, 50% of Google's profits came from those 20% time projects. So if you can actually do that and build into your organization those little chances for those innovation, little competitions based around how we can have, say, a multi-competition where employees do things based around incubation or whatever, you know, or new business proposals, they're good ideas. So they're great. The fourth thing that's really, really important when we talk about this is, so how can you actually help people to exit your company happily? And Recruits do this really well. You got to remember, this company has a turnover of twenty billion a year. So this is not a small company that just you know is a family-run business. This is a huge organization, and they recognize that people exit the company, and they want them to exit the company well. Another really good organization do, that do that is PropellerNet, which are a Brighton-based company. And I saw them speak. Nikki Gatenby, who was the MD of the company back then, uh, talk about this. That really good companies want you to do well. And even when you're exiting the company, they want you to move on to the best role possible and they'll help you to do that. And recruit do that really, really well. They're aware that people don't stay in organizations for 50 years. So they're there to help employees within the organization to be able to move on to a good space. But the last and final thing that these, these organizations do is they build an equivalent process for contract workers that work in the organization. So even if you're a contractor, recruit do this, you get the same benefits as the employees that work for the organization. And you get that for up to three years within the organization. So 90% of contract workers who work for the organization recruit that when they move on to somewhere else, they move into a role straight away. This is important because everybody begins to feel valued. Not every organization can have full-time workers. Some will need to be contract. But if you can value those contract workers, they're going to work really well for you. Um, They're going to feel a sense of belonging working for the organization. And they're going to help. These organizations are the organizations that are beginning to tackle what we see as a problem with the great re- re- resignation. These are the organizations that are beginning to see um, that this is an issue that needs to be taken on. It needs to be resolved. I really love this idea that you said, as, apart from I think that everything makes absolute sense. I love the idea of these organizations that value innovation as well because it resonates with me from my own really research study that I published around the role of the change agency or change uh, change agent uh, in successfully implementing innovation through a, a theory or concept that is called organizational ambidexterity. So organizational ambidexterity is really the organization's ability to use a dual strategy approach of exploration and exploitation. So basically, as one of the parts of the organization will be concentrating on the exploration or innovation part, the exploitation part will continue business as usual. But at the same time, it's not that then it's so rigid that the people that are assigned to do the innovation will not have partial on, on the exploitation and vice versa, but that they, these two branches start to, with this um, ambidexterity, there are ways of very efficiently and successfully merge these two branches into um, one and, and then create this constant loop of innovation mm-hmm. while the company is still profitable. Fantastic. So when you talk about exploitation, what do we mean by that? Exploitation is exploitation of what we have now as a business that is working. Exploitation, not in human uh, resources or in employees' side of things, but it's basically if now the production lines are working well, and they are producing and exploiting our uh, processes in the best possible way, we continue to exploit that branch of our products and that work stream because that is the business as usual right now. But at the same time, the profits of that exploitation that now is the business as usual, not all of it, but some of it will be destined to R&D and to do innovation 
with a specific goal in mind. Of course, it's not just go and spend in whatever, but of course, this is where the change agent and the, these transformational projects come into places to renew them constantly, constantly to innovate them constantly. And of course, looking after the human resources and, and the people in teams and how to look after uh, these people working in innovation and also exploitation side of their companies or these work streams uh, come to play. But it's all about, of course, people working in organizations, making sure that they feel part of it, making sure that they are constantly being informed about what's going on in the company. So, yeah. But I see one of the the issues now with, with remote working, because there has to be pros and cons, and some of the cons are maybe that you know, out of sight, out of mind can be the issue when it comes to working remotely, like spending time away from where the rest of the team are. Like if the rest of the team are in the office at a certain time, but you're still remotely working all the time, does it mean that you get bypassed when it comes to promotion? Does creativity not happen because you're not in that sort of forum where creativity is happening because nobody's in that board, you're not in that boardroom with everybody else. And I think one of the things possibly is that organizations need to find ways to be able to adapt to that. So if somebody is working remotely and can't be with the team on a specific day when they're working on something in the boardroom, listen, technology has allowed us to be able to bring screens into rooms so that person Absolutely. can feel like they're in the room yes. um, and they're experiencing the, the same process and they can get to speak up when they need to speak up. So they're, they're, they're valued and part of that. And I think leaders need to work even harder to allow that to be able to happen so nobody feels excluded at all. Yes, actually, um, one of the papers that I've done I quoted in my research is uh, from Ross and um, it's been written in 2004, so well before all of these. And he affirms that one of the key factors to enable change is uh, the range of human dynamics within an organization, with these being most crucial during any period of innovation implementation. So it is inevitable that people and organizations need to adapt and renew their mindsets, practices and capability to prosper within new contexts. So basically what you're saying about involving people, and this is exactly what I did in any um, of my projects where there, there was innovation there, there was there were two work streams, people doing business as usual and people implementing innovation. And we would always also second people from one work stream to the other so that they experience and they start to bring in the knowledge, the newfound knowledge and the business as usual knowledge that works so that both can cross-pollinize this very um, important, this is just so important, cross-pollinization, reutilizations in the treasure that we have in organizations with people that have been working there for a long time. It's not about coming in with a new team and undoing everything and redoing everything just for the sake of it. Yeah. And I think that's the, 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 the conundrum that many organizations are going to have, how they can create or keep that sort of creative spark flowing, you know, where it was probably much easier happened when everybody was in the one building at the one time as well. And I suppose... Um, uh, organizations have a, a, a dilemma at the moment, like maybe it's not safe enough to bring everybody back into the workplace at the one time. So teams are coming back at different stages, say, at, you know, some are coming back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, others are coming back Thursday, Friday. And I think one of the things that I think leaders should do is that when they bring people back into um, the building, so for the days that they're, they're not working remotely, but they're on site, is that they should create as much engagement between the people as possible create situations where people can actively have meetings together and explore and all those things that are have, we've missed so much for the last 18 months. And then for the time that they work remotely, they can go back to what they've been doing, you know, very well themselves. As I said before, nobody learned how to work remotely. We just did it ourselves. There was no training, you know, manual given to it. So we've adapted very well. But I think leaders have that, that issue where back in the workplace, how do they create as much engagement as possible? And that's what's important. Here's a really good analogy, because when we talk about the workplace and being out of the workplace, I don't, I don't know what it's like, but I, certainly over here in Ireland, and I presume it's quite similar in the UK or Argentina, where you're from as well. Uh, when you go to a wedding, have you ever been invited to the full wedding where you go to the church and then you go to the reception and you're there for the whole day? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of people 
that get invited to that. They're the important friends that arrive at that. And then you meet aunts and uncles and other people that you don't know. But for some Absolutely. reason, you create a bond with these people just by being in the church, the, the drinks that happen after the church, the reception that happens in the, um, in the hotel afterwards. And these people you've never met, you're sitting at a table with them and creating some form of a bond. Yeah. Then in the evening, there are people that are invited to what we call the afters. So these are the friends that were probably not dear enough to, to invite to the whole wedding. But they come yes. to the bit, say, from seven or eight o'clock in the evening and they join in. There's some dynamic that happens there, even though you're sitting at a table with people you didn't meet till you met them at the church or met them at the drinks after the church. You've created a bond with these people. And these new people that suddenly arrive in, that even might be your friends that arrive at eight o'clock in the evening, the bond doesn't seem to be as strong at that particular moment as the one you've created with the people that you've sat across the table from but never met before. And that's a bit like the workplace, isn't it? So when yeah. we have certain people that are working remotely all the time and they suddenly turn up and we haven't seen them in ages, it's almost like they're fighting to get back in to the team and fighting to be recognised because we have this greater connection because we've been working closer to the people that we've been working on site with than those that are working remotely. That's another thing that organisations will have to do a lot of work to try and duplicate because it Absolutely. is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And just to finish up, there's a really good study that was done because uh, there was one of the guys, I think I think it was Nicholas Bloom, had written an article for HBR. And I was, I was looking at that and he talked about a study I hadn't heard about before that in 2014, he was working with, uh, he'd done a study with a multinational that was based in China at the time. And uh, he had a group of 250 of those workers were working remotely four days a week. And there was another group that they studied as well. They remained in the office. And what they discovered from that, that was that after 21 months, it was discovered that the work from home employees were fifth, had a 50% lower chance of promotion than the teams that had stayed in the office constantly. So there is a bias towards people that are working in the office compared to those that are working from home. We just need to be mindful of that. Absolutely. So basically, there isn't just a one magic pill or a silver bullet to account for every situation. So this hybrid working environment is a fantastic word, but it's quite a complex one uh, yeah. to implement in the workplace. Yeah. So what we're saying is just be flexible, understand, talk to your employees, ask them what is it that they want? What is it that they want to do? When do they want to come to the office? What's it feel like for them to come to the office? And if you can do that, have that really stark conversation with the employees about what's happened over the last 18 months and what they want from the future of work, I think you're on the right path there as well. But flexibility is the key to the future of work. Do you think maybe also communities, like um, online communities of uh, activities to be done online and also offline communities of activities to be done together as, a, I don't know, a team building exercise, but not just one of those that you tick the box and say, OK, we did a team building exercise and we did, we got a well-being employee benefit strategy and tick box. Um, but something that is really meaningful. Yeah, I think they're, they're going to be important, but they've got to get it right. Because I think, as you said, there is a tick boxing exercise that is done every year where like there's a, a week of, you know, World Happiness Week or whatever it is, our Employee Happiness Week. And I don't like them at all because I think if you just do a week of it or a day of it, where it feels kind of nice and everyone's lovely to each other and they're coming up with all these sort of ideas, but nothing else is done for the other 51 weeks of the year. And I think it has to be a constant you really need to find out from the employees, what is it that they want? What will feel better for them? What do you think will enhance their lives? Like when you talk about breathing, that definitely works. When you talk about being able to switch off um, once you've left work, that definitely works and that definitely helps. The problem is we're so engaged. And I talked about this last week as well. Was it 4.1 billion extra emails went out in the space of February 2021? And that was only on the, uh, the Microsoft network. So we're being constantly bombarded with information and need to be switched on. So there's lots of different things that need to work here. So once the, the team that shows you a package that is able to really address the main problems, not just about like yoga at 12 o'clock, because um, I know that was a problem, I think, with the Goldman Sachs workers there about three months ago. The Goldman Sachs employees that were the junior employees um, were working 100 hours a week. And the response from the, the management at the time was quite poor. I think they sent him around a fruit basket and they told him that there was online yoga available at half 12. And they said, well, they can't even, we can't even, you know, cook for ourselves. We don't have time. 
Um, and we certainly haven't got time for yoga at half 12 during the day. So that's an idea that sounds good in somebody's head in the boardroom. But the truth is, it makes no sense to the employees that are told that that works. So it needs to be something that works in tandem with the employees. And uh, yeah, not just a ticks, a tick box, a box ticking <laughs> exercise there. <laughs> yes, exactly. So last week we touched upon nose breathing uh, versus mouth breathing. Do you want to expand a little bit more about that? Of course, yes, gladly. Ha, huh. do nose breathe or to mouth breathe? That is the question. Well, luckily, science has done lots of research on this. And um, in short, the best way to breathe is through your nose. Um, so just remember this little mantra, as we mentioned last time, nose is for breathing and mouth is for eating. Well, the simple reason given by science is this molecule called nitric oxide. And uh, nitric oxide uh, occurs naturally in our bodies and uh, plays a crucial role in our health. If I wasn't studying the science of breathwork, I wouldn't have known about this. And it's, it's, it's so vital. Basically, nitric oxide, when it decreases... Um, in our bodies, it also alters our heart function. It also has effects on our high blood pressure, drop in cognitive function as well. It can cause chronic inflammation and also weakens immune system. So, wow, this is just uh, in- incredible. Also, when we only breathe through our nose, particularly when we're asleep, it's proven that it leads to better oral health. And there are various good reasons for that as well. So, yeah, so there are two basic ways of uh, getting this uh, magic little molecule in our bodies, uh, nitric oxide. One is through eating the right amount of vegetables. And the other one, as you can guess, is nose breathing. So, yes. Wow. Who knew? Because most of our (laughs) lives, we were breathing into our nose and out to our mouth. And we were told to do that for years and years and how different it is. So, when we look at, say, when we're in the process of sleeping, how, how do we regulate that when we sleep or what, what goes on there or what should we do best when we sleep? Actually, last week during a one-on-one session, I was having a breathwork session. Um, I was asked exactly this question. And the fact is, uh, sleep must be right to allow our bodies to recover, as we know, and to also avoid uh, many other illnesses, including depression, lack of focus and anxiety which are really vital for work, the workplace as well, of course, as our lives. And going back to the sleeping and uh, whether we should uh, breathe through our noses, as, as humans, we actually spend a third of our lives um, asleep. And it's, it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. But this is why it's so important that we breathe through our noses while we're asleep. Unfortunately, most of us end up um, breathing through our mouths at some point during the night. And of course, this causes uh, sleep apnea, snoring, dryness of the mouth, which uh, also accelerates tooth decay. And this is the magic mouth tape that I mentioned before. I know it sounds very odd, but it's actually really effective. I use it personally every night and there's so many now um, products in the market that will allow you to mouth tape and it's not the normal taping with adhesive that might be not very good for you and create some uh, dryness or whatever but it's just uh, this very good mouth tapes and also allows you to if needed to breathe through little um, holes that these mouth tapes have and they're not very expensive so we're not talking about a huge investment here. So absolutely, I would recommend mouth taping to make sure that during your sleep, you only breathe through your nose. And if at some point someone had complained about you snoring, you would also stop that. So that's an extra bonus for it. So yes. Oh, I, li- I like that. <laughs> but just so nobody goes off now suddenly and gets out a roll of sellotape and starts to tape their lips together tonight. <laughs> You can buy this. Where, where can you get this mouth uh, tape that you talk about? Because I'm sure it's much better than using. Don't use sellotape. That's what I'm saying. Please don't. Use don't. Sellotape. No, <laughs> no, don't. And also, please inform yourself um, before you start to ta- tape your mouth 
all across. Um, and of course, this is also if you have any underlying medical conditions, do please consult your doctor, do a mm. little bit of research. But you can find these mouth tapes in Amazon. Just search mouth taping and you will find the best products in the market. And again, they're really not very expensive and I really recommend that you try them. If I was somebody who didn't want to use Amazon, um, can it be got at your local chemist or pharmacy? Absolutely, yes. And also directly to uh, the the suppliers and the manufacturers themselves. There are lots of really good manufacturers themselves. In fact, there is one that is called Somnifix that I use and mm -hmm. I buy them directly from, from them. And of course, as everything, you take it to the next level. In my breathwork group, a few of us are now trialing a mouth taping while running or cycling because it's the best way to also increase this exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen in our lungs and body. But that's that's hopefully will be covered on in, on, in our next episode or one of the next episodes that we host here. Right. Stephen dead on a bike because he taped his mouth <laughs> while he tried to cycle 20 miles. No, hopefully <laughs> not. So please, please don't just go and do it. Don't do this at home without uh, further research. <laughs> Brilliant. So you, you, you also talked about bolts. Um, breathing there earlier as well. So this is a very simple test, uh, but very important really to diagnose whether you are a dysfunctional breather or not. Um, so BOLD, as mentioned before, is basically a um, body oxygen level test score and it's a simple test. And uh, you just hold your breath and until you get this first air hunger feeling and then you measure how many seconds. So as, as I mentioned earlier, but basically, why is it important? Because it's a way of measuring whether someone is a dysfunctional breather. So dysfunctional breathing, let's try and embody this because just sometimes listening to the information doesn't really help us to feel it. So let's pause for a few seconds here, if we may, and just right now try and feel your breath. Whereabouts in your body do you feel your breath? Is it up here on your chest? Or is it in your belly? If it is up on your chest, what do you feel about it? Is it shallow, rapid, slow? Or is it quite nice and posed? If it is on your belly, can you feel that your belly rises up and down like a balloon as you inhale, rises up, exhale, deflates like a balloon? If you are listening to this podcast where you can be sat somewhere, another way to do it is put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly and just breathe normally and just feel, see which hand is moving more up and down as you breathe in and out. So coupled with the bolt test, this is a very simple way of seeing whether you are breathing on your chest, shallow, rapid, or nice and diaphragmatic through your belly. What is very uh, interesting as well in the studies done in terms of uh, dysfunctional breathing is that Dysfunctional breathing is related to also hyperventilation. And when with hyperventilation, chest breathing is shallow and rapid. We also ignite our autonomous nervous system linked to our sympathetic nervous system, which is the system in our nervous, it's our nervous system linked to fight or flight. So imagine that on top of being stressed by normal things in life, you also add this extra dysfunctional breathing condition where you just inhale in and out through your breath and rapidly, then that sends a message to your brain that you have to constantly be creating cortisol to go into your body, that you constantly have to be in alert mode and there is no giving into this, okay, there is, there, there is a balance, this balance that we keep talking about. So this is the reason why dysfunctional breathing is so important to diagnose. 
and also to manage and to exercise through the relearning of the beautiful art of breathing. And uh, yes, because the breath will definitely help everyone to, to get into a better balanced state, to also be able to manage their mental state, to be able to have a better sleep and better sleep will allow people not to be too anxious in the morning and take um, rush decisions or even go into depression or anxiety. So yes, it's all a little cycle that can be very healthy if we use the right tools. And those tools are just us. They're, they're very natural tools. We're not taking anything else that's, that's causing this. It's the, it's the body doing it itself. Oh, I love Absolutely. that. So, so yes. can we biohack our psychological states? Absolutely, yes. We think that, um, you know, energy just comes from maybe food or coffee, but actually, uh, yes, we can create this energy and this biochemistry exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the most optimum way through our breath. Our breaths are our control remote, remote control, I should say, to our state of minds. And this is what people that are specialists in this area of breathing call the biohacking of our psychological states with breathing. It's as simple as being able to know these techniques and tools and getting into the habit of doing it and using them that will give us this absolutely incredible benefits of biohacking our minds through our breaths. As soon as we start to breathe a little bit more consciously and able to exhale longer than the inhale if we need to calm down or inhale and exhale rapidly if we need to energize and lots of other techniques, then this is how we're going to biohack and we always can biohack our states of mind. So yes, the two Situations that I'm talking to people happen uh, this week, actually. One of them, it's a man that came to do some work in, in my house. And he, when he knew that I was uh, doing breath work for, uh, for companies, he said, oh my God, this is uh, so, so good. And I was quite impressed by the fact that he said that he suffered from panic attacks. He would wake up in the middle of the night, totally thinking that he was not going to be able to breathe anymore. And um, when he went to the doctor and went to the N the NHS has recommended that he do breathing exercises. And he knew exactly how to do box breathing, which is the one that we did in our first episode. And as soon as he does box breathing, his panic attack, and he said that this feeling of uh, being uh, totally out of air just stopped. So... He swears by this method, and it's such a simple method, but that comes to show how you can biohack your psychological state with breathing. And the other thing that happened also um, was a friend of mine is going to go through a, a hip replacement operation, very young, and she, she needs it. And the doctors have said to her that she will not be put under total anesthetic but only local anesthetic, and that they recommend that she learns breathing exercises to keep calm during this major operation that she's going to be having. So this is coming more and more onto the mainstream because science and research and people are experiencing this amazingly biohacking effects of, of the breathing into their bodies. Wow. So she's going to get a hip replacement, but she's going to use breathing techniques to help her through that process. Absolutely. Yes. So yesterday, actually, I was asking my current trainer, I'm doing this new um, training as well. I keep mm -hmm. learning myself, as I mentioned before. And he is a very well experienced, wrote a couple of books. It's a Russian method. Mm. And I've asked him about which method is the best for operations of this type. And it's basically... A simple method, but applied in a conscious way. And this is how I'm going to take my friend through it and explain it. Well, let's hope she doesn't forget how to do that breathing technique on the day of the hip operation. Oh my God, <laughs> that, yes, that would be the not. worst. <laughs> do you know what? We've, yeah. we've had such a really good sort of episode talking about all of the things, whether it comes to, to, to breath or whether it comes to, you know, the great resignation and how we can create workplaces that need to be flexible and change the way we work and really look at their employees and see how we can create workplaces where people feel good about themselves. 
ask them the question about what they want the future of work to look like or the way that they're going to work into the future uh, to be and then to act on that. I think you're going to finish off now with um, a breathing exercise, Liliana, are you? Absolutely. And today I wanted to take you through a three minutes guided meditation that we'll be doing using our breaths as well. So let me just uh, guide you in, into this beautiful state of this guided meditation for the next three to four minutes. This breathwork guided meditation is set in a beautiful ocean. Depending on where you are listening to our podcast from, please try to find a place where you will not be disturbed for the next three to four minutes. Now, arrive here and find a comfortable seated position with your back nice and straight. Either sitting on a chair or on the floor with your legs crossed with a firm posture but a comfortable posture. Now come to your breath. Breathing from your belly. Breathing in and out through your nostrils. Count four as you breathe in and four as you breathe out. Now inhale and exhale. Two, three, four. As you exhale, draw your tummy in. In slight support to your lower back. Feel your chest bone lifting slightly as you breathe, but concentrate on breathing through your belly. The shoulders relaxing with your breath and keep going. And exhale. Three, two, a nice regular rhythm, relaxed rhythm. Close your eyes and imagine that your breath is like the wave of an ocean. As you inhale, the wave rises and you Exhale and the wave falls. Inhale, the wave rises. As you exhale, the wave falls. As you inhale. And exhale. And as you continue to follow the wave that you are creating with your breath, imagine that the breath is on the surface of a vast ocean of awareness. As you inhale and exhale. And at the same time now, As you follow the wave-like motion of your breath, bring your awareness below the surface of the water and go deeper. And deeper. Down into the depth of the ocean to an inner place of stillness. Holding that space of deep inner stillness, continue at the same time to follow the wave-like motion of the breath. Mm-hmm. 
as you inhale the wave rises, as you exhale the wave falls, holding on to these aspects, the two aspects of your being at the same time, inhale and exhale. You are breathing the dynamic flow of energy and at the same time this deep inner stillness in the depths of the ocean. As you inhale, as you exhale, As you continue to listen to the sounds to take you deeper into your practice. Thank you everyone listening to us. See you again during our next episode in the next couple of weeks. Happy days.